as we think about the teachings that Jesus gave in the New Testament on relating to others, oftentimes we would term this as non-resistance. And there's, it's based on Matthew 5, and you can go ahead and turn there, um, that, and it says there that she resists not evil. And this term is used to describe the life and the belief of we who believe the will of God rejects the use of force for personal or for social protection. It includes the rejection of participating in warfare and not retaliating when wronged. And Jesus modeled this way of life as he lived his life here on the earth. And even as he modeled it, he taught it. And this evening, we want to look at how he led his disciples through growth to growth in this area. But as we notice this, we'll see that it took his sheep that he was shepherding a good little while to actually latch on to these concepts and to put them to work in their life. But they had the advantage of firsthand contact with Jesus, and they walked with him for several years there. And yet it took them almost that entire time to really grasp what Jesus was trying to teach them. So let's look here in Matthew chapter 5, and I'll begin to read in verse 38. Matthew 5, verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So here we see that Jesus gave some really clear teaching. He described what they had been accustomed to in the Old Testament. And then he turned around and said, but this is what I have to say to you. And in the passage here, Jesus gives the essence of the Old Testament, uh, Testament approach to this situation. And this is what the disciples were used to. And it's called an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, you know, I, I believe that that doesn't really mean what it appears like on the surface. Um, you know, often if someone does something wrong to another person, the the carnal motivation is to do something even worse. And I'll tell you another story that brings this out. And it wasn't really harmful, but it, it just illustrates the story. There was one time many years ago, there was two men, one, a man and his employee that pulled into a place of business on a pick, in their pickup. And they were, went in and tended their business and all of that. And when they came back out, one of their friends' pickup was parked right beside it. And it so happened that they had a dead calf on the back of their truck, dead newborn calf that they were planning to dispose of in some form or way. And just on a whim, they took the calf and flipped it onto their friend's pickup bed and left. And so life, life went on for that day. But that night, the employer and his wife went away somewhere and Whenever they came back home and flipped the kitchen lights on, the wife 
let out a horrified gasp. There was a dead calf laying on their kitchen table. And the husband began to laugh. And um, anyway, he, he knew where that calf had come from. But that's just a funny story, maybe, that illustrates the human carnal nature to get back at a worse, uh, worse angle than what you were gotten. And so actually, the Old Testament um, practice there of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was actually a restraint for carnal-natured mankind. You know, the, the unrestrained mankind, if a tooth got knocked out, what well, you know, he might just be tempted to cut the man's hand off or take his life or anything. And so they were actually, under the Old Testament, it was a form of discipline and um, way to keep people motivated to not do wrong, but yet it restrained the action that was done in response to it. Uh, if, if you punched an eye out, you were limited to stop with that eye in retribution. So that's the Old Testament approach. It was not revenge. It was, like, it was punishment of like kind. Now Jesus here was instituting a new approach. And the new approach, of course, went over and beyond the uh, command of the Old Testament. And in doing so, it was so opposed to the Old Testament's teaching that Christ's teaching replaced it. And we believe that Christ's teaching here superseded the Old Testament. He gave standards of ethics here that um, went over and beyond the commonly accepted standards of his day. And, um, you know, that of resist not evil and how we, thinking then further how we work this out on our own um, practices, how we respond to lawsuits and how we respond to borrowers. And he taught that his followers should have a new level of righteousness, an indwelling concept that empowers us to right action. And here in verse 20 of Matthew 5, it says, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so, you know, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they really studied and they were really careful about a lot of things. Uh, Jesus told them one time, you tithe mint and anus and cumin. And those things are three really, really tiny herbs that you might could harvest out of your garden. And he said, you're so meticulous about tithing that you even down to those nitty-gritty things that you might collect by the tablespoonful, carefully portion out a tithe out of them, but yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law, such as mercy and judgment. And there's another phrase, but I can't put, pull it together right now. Truth, yeah, truth and mercy and judgment. You can't, um, you, you don't do those things. And Jesus here in this very same passage is saying, your righteousness is to exceed that. You're supposed to have these concepts indwelling in your heart so that you can go ahead and live them out and put them into shoe leather. And so Jesus was telling them the right things. The New Testament way is not one of resisting evil, but rather of giving place to it. But it took a while for Jesus' sheep to see that and to make it a part of their life. So let's turn to Luke chapter 9. They'd had this clear teaching here, but we see that the disciples still possessed confused thinking. 
they they hadn't got it put together yet in this episode here in Luke chapter 9, um, beginning to read in verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So Jesus had taught his disciples, his students, to not resist evil and to turn the other cheek. But his students were acting the opposite here. It still had not penetrated their minds. When the Samaritans refused to give them a place to stay, um, under the eye for eye and tooth for tooth culture that they were used to, they asked for Christ's power for revenge. And actually, as I pointed out earlier, by the standard of the law, they weren't even following that. You know, they had given them a slight, said, no, we're not going to help you out. And they said, shall we call fire down and destroy them? You know, that, that's what the law was meant to prevent. It was not really following even the law, but, you know, in their carnality, they said, let's just take care of them. And we see that Jesus rebuked it. But they, were they thought they were expressing loyalty to Christ, but they were going totally counter to the teachings that he had given them, and it was out of harmony with his spirit and with his methods. But verse 56 we see here shows his methods. He uh, rebuked them in 55 and said, the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went to another village. In other words, he was able to pass over the offense and just move on and try to get their needs met somewhere else. The disciples hadn't grown much in the way of this method of living at this point, this non-resistance, as we call it. And Jesus rebuked them, and it doesn't give... The necessarily all the words of the rebuke, but we know that from what is given there that um, it says this is the opposite of what I've taught you, and I'm not, I don't want you to be this way. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, it says, Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. And Jesus was living this out instead of being the avenger um, and even getting them even to what they had done instead of the way excessive method that the disciples were calling for, he said, let's just go somewhere else and see what if we can't get our needs met there. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18 now, and a short while later, Peter thought he was growing some. He was starting to, apparently the teachings were beginning to start to penetrate into his thinking, and here in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 18, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And so Jesus here was, or Peter here was saying that, you know, like I said, apparently the teachings were beginning to penetrate and 
He's starting to rationalize. What, what does all this mean? And what, how far should I go? And what's practical as far as working with another person? You know, when, so he went to Jesus and he said, would, if I was to forgive my brother, would, would seven times suffice? And Jesus gave this answer that uh, no, up to 70 times seven or 490 times. And, you know, we believe that that means that don't even try to keep track. You know, it's, it's totally impractical. It's so far over the top that if you keep track that long, you've got a deeper problem. So we see by this that non-resistance had been taught, but that it still had not been totally learned by these disciples these uh, sheep of Jesus. And so confused thinking led to improper conduct. Um, so, you know, how, how do we respond to an offense? Are we able to pass them off? Or do they get next to us and start engendering some kind of response out of us? Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, beginning to read in verse 36. Then, then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Now jumping to verse 47. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come out against him, Behold, you come out as against a thief with swords and staves. But when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So we see here that the disciples still hadn't totally caught on. And Jesus, I believe, wanted to teach them a final lesson on how to relate to aggressors. And you notice there in the first couple of verses I read that he said, we're going to go out and this is, this is my final hour. And he'd been telling them some things and maybe it didn't totally click at that moment exactly what he meant. Maybe it did. But he said, told them how to prepare. He said, you have a purse, take it and your script and if you don't have a sword, sell a garment and buy a sword. And I, as I thought about why, why would he have told them to be carrying weapons? And I believe it was part of the lesson. He wanted them to have the capability to do it. And as the story told, played itself out there, um, I believe he wanted them to be carrying weapons so that he could teach them not to use them. And he gave them a powerful lesson, rebuking them for using the sword and then in restoring the servant's ear. And, you know, in that touch 
of restoring that man's ear. You know, for those 11 sheep that were gathered around him, his disciples, and as they saw the, the ear getting cut off and maybe fall into the ground, and Jesus, in the moment that they knew he would be led away as a bound man, headed for likely certain death, he had prepared them for that much of it, and they probably were realizing at this point that this is it. And as Jesus put that ear back on that man and it was restored whole again, there was a message sent there that I believe finally drove home what he was trying to tell them. He healed that and he taught them a lesson in non-resistant love that was so simple and plain that it could have been used by a first grade teacher. He said, I love this man and even though he's come here to take my life, I'll not. I'll not allow any harm to come to him by us. And then flipping to Luke 23, as Jesus hung on the cross, he gave one more strong lesson. And in verse 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So we've looked at the clear teaching that Jesus had given, and now at the confused thinking that the disciples had, but moving on now, we would like to look at right thinking and conduct. You know, in the day of the Pentecost, the disciples got a zeal like they never had before as the Holy Spirit came down and entered into their heart and their experience. They changed, and as we observe their conduct after this, as it is written out in the scriptures, we never again see this militant, I've got to take care of myself attitude that they had here in this section we just looked at. It's different, and we don't see a desire or a tendency to use a weapon to defend themselves or to be an aggressor. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. You know, it's Peter, um, the one that cut the ear off, is speaking here in this passage, and he's, he comes out so strong on the right side of what Jesus had been teaching. First Peter chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. We see here that the cross that Jesus had once rejected, you know, there was one time, and I haven't looked at it here tonight, there's one time that Jesus told them that I'm going, his disciples, that I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and there I'll be. Um, I forget the exact wording, but anyway, I'll, my life will be taken. I'll be crucified, and I'll lose my life. And Peter rebuked him, and Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter and for this. And now look at this same man, Peter, here, that is saying 
the very concepts that Jesus had been trying to teach them and that they were such slow learners of for that three-year period while he was with them. But apparently, as they had time to reflect on Jesus' teaching and his actions and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that came into them in the day of Pentecost, it all clicked. And we have Peter saying here that if you, because of acting by your conscience, endure grief and suffering wrongfully, then this is thankworthy. But if you do something that brings on your own grief, well, then there's no glory really in that because you're simply getting the results of your conduct. But if you do well and suffer for it and take it patiently, he said, this is acceptable with God. And then he called on the example of Jesus. And looking back, Jesus was, had gone back to heaven. He said, Jesus suffered patiently for us. And he said, he did no sin, neither was guile found in him. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he was threatened, he th or suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So I think there's a key point there. Commit yourself to the Lord. You know, when someone works against you, and, and these things get so close to home for us. You know, I had an experience this uh, winter here, actually last fall and winter, why our, we have... Each Cheryl and I each have cell phones, and our boys do, and we also carried a landline, and the service was getting rather sporadic. I, I really feel for the landline companies because it seems like there's fewer and fewer people using them. Just about every one of our young couples that get married just use a cell phone and don't use a landline, and I would assume it may be the same way here. But uh, we had a landline, and partly because we had a fax machine, and we used that thing from time to time. But... I was telling Cheryl the last year or so that we should just get rid of this line. And, well, toward the end of July, we lost our phone service. And it, it went a couple weeks, and we were getting by fine without it. But I decided I need to bring this thing to a head. We were paying this bill. And so I called the company and put in a, a request for a repair. And a man came out and he looked at it, and, you know, we live out in the country, I and mean, we're, we're out, there's housing pretty sparse, and uh, he came back after a while, and he said, you know, down that back road back there, there's a mile stretch where that line is no good, and that, um, he said, I, I can't fix it today, and he said, I don't have the supplies with me, and I'll, I'll need to send out someone else to take care of it, and as, think, uh, well, a couple weeks went by, and I, I got another bill and I paid it and uh, another couple weeks went by and finally we got a, another bill and I wrote on it, canceled my service and put it in the envelope and sent it back. And about three days later, there was a repairman came by from out of the area and he said, I got a memo from high up in the company to um, see what's wrong down here. And I, I told him my story and he went around the back road and he, he got the phone to working. And he said, if you, if you want to uh, maintain your service, he said, here's my cell phone number. And if you want to maintain your service, call me within three days. And so I, I didn't call him. And on the third day, the first service stopped. Our phone didn't work anymore. And I thought, okay, it's done. But I continued to get bills. And finally, about the second or third bill later, I called the company. And they said, well, you, you can't... Um, 
cancel the service that way. You need, it's a process and we need to do it in the office here. And I said, well, I'd understood from the repairman that that's the, um, you know, that I had to call him if I wanted to maintain service. And anyway, we hadn't had a phone since July and it was like December by then. And I had paid three or four bills in the meantime. And I, I requested, could they return that money, refund that money? And long story short, the other day I wrote out a check for that balance. They, and I had to think of the verse, take joyfully the spoiling of your goods. And I, I purposed in my heart to rejoice that I had the money that I could pay it. And so, you know, as we think about these concepts here, they get close to home. Um, let's flip to Romans chapter 12. Um, well, let me back up. First Peter chapter 3 first, um, verse 9, while we're here in Peter. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. This is Peter again. In this passage, he re reinforces his belief on non-resistance. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 now, and we'll notice there, uh, jumping to the Apostle Paul now, um, here in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 30, he says, he wrote, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. And so we, we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's the teachings of the New Testament scripture. And let's look at verses 31 to 34 then. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the, of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So, you know, this earth, things are temporal, and we don't know why for sure that Jesus and God said, this is the way I want you to do it. But the fact remains that these are the instructions. And if we embody them and cheerfully live them out, that there, we have the promise of an eternal reward. It says a better and an enduring substance. You know, these things, earth, these, this earth's things are transient. And, you know, houses can burn and vehicles can crash and, um, Farms can get covered up by housing developments, and there's all sorts of things that can happen to us as individuals. And, but yet, um, it's important that we are willing to hold on to these things of our earth lightly. Let's turn to Proverbs 24, and there's a couple really interesting verses in there that I've probably read over a number of times, but that have come to me, or I have noticed here in the last couple years, and really thought about what they mean. Um, turn to Proverbs 24, verse 17, and it reads, 
Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. And so, so, you know, what this is telling me, that, you know, I'm not to do anything to oppose another person, but if some calamity falls, befalls that person that was opposing me, that I'm not supposed to even rejoice about it. Or, God, it says, the Lord will be displeased. And so that really hits home, hits deep into our thoughts of how do we uh, carry all this out? And it requires closeness to the hand of Jesus and prayer and yieldedness that we can live like this. You know, the Apostle Paul had thought that Christ was a fake and he worked hard to stamp out the movement that Jesus had started. But the time came, it says in 1 Corinthians, that Paul determined to preach only Christ and him crucified. And there's a lot that's implied in this statement, considering who Paul was. He said in one place, I was exceeding mad to, to stamp out the movement. He put a couple of words of my own in there. Exceeding mad is scripture, but he... Uh, said, I was determined to stamp it out. And he was like a raving madman almost and went about and had a compulsion and drive to work against Christ and his followers. And now he says, I'm determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And, and as we compare the passage here that, um, well, I'm in Proverbs right now, but what we read there in Romans, um, as we compare that passage there that Paul wrote in Romans, it compares well with what Jesus taught there in Matthew 5 in the New Testament. And also we have his example to consider. When uh, he was persecuted, he bore it without trying to defend himself. You know, when he and Silas were thrown into the prison cell there, um, the name of the place, Philippi, uh, and they had their sitting in there at midnight with their feet and hands in the stocks, singing praises to God, that was a tremendous change for a man that was breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the followers of Christ. So we see from this that it took apostles a long time to see the way of non-resistance and the meaning of the cross. But the important thing is that they did. They learned these things and they put them to practice in our lives, in their lives. So as we study what is taught in the New Testament and recorded there about Jesus, it convinces us that he both taught and practiced this thing of turning the other cheek to those who would oppose us, showing love, showing Christian compassion to those around about us, and also that his early followers came to realize that this was God's will for them. And it become clear through these passages that they're not isolated passages, but that it's woven throughout the entire New Testament. And so what, why do so, professing, so, many, so few professing Christians today believe and practice this matter? And, well, I don't really have all the answers, but we can realize that it does run counter to natural tendencies. Totally so. You know, self-protection is pretty important to us as a, in our natural state and it's not natural to yield to aggressors but we're given this assignment in the Bible as it says in 1st Peter 2 
that we should follow in the steps of Christ who committed himself to God and endured being reviled and abused without threatening and reviling. And so being loving and non-resistant is not weakness, but it requires great inner strength, tremendous inner strength. And so as we think about when someone speaks evil of us, it's important that we uh, are willing to take it someone takes our possessions or gets us in a business deal or treats us unjustly, the way of Christ is to take it patiently and allow him to set the record straight, keeping our eye on that goal where there is an enduring and never-ending substance for our blessing.